Well, good morning, church. It is a, a pleasure to be here this morning in front of you. Uh, this morning, we, well, in the last well, six weeks now, we've been going through the Ten Commandments, as Scott mentioned. And really, the, what we see in the Ten Commandments is more literally translated as the Ten Words from God. So this morning, Scott said we finished the Sixth Commandment last week. We have the Seventh Commandment. So please take your Bibles, open them to Exodus chapter 20. I highly encourage you, bring your Bibles to church and open up God's Word and have it in front of you. It is good. I'll be reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story of what happened to me recently. So I was sitting in the living room studying for this sermon, and my wife walks in the room. And she looks out the window, and all of a sudden she turns and says, can you believe it? And me, kind of clueless, believe what? She began to explain these monstrous trees, these towering trees out in our yard came from but a tiny seed. And I was curious, so I looked up, a pretty common tree to our area is a Douglas fir tree. Now the fir tree, a common old growth, grows at about 250 feet tall. That's about the size of a 20-story building. So she finishes explaining how beautiful God's creation is. I look down to my studies and I see the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And then there's a weird connection. Much like that huge tree comes from but a tiny seed, the sin of adultery comes from but a tiny seed of temptation. My goal this morning isn't to give you a talk on adultery, but to help you understand the gravity, the weight of the sin of adultery, and truly how Christ has saved us from our adulterous relationship with sin. So now before we read, let's, let's step back and get a little context. So these ten commands, these ten words from God, they're not placed here to be a burden upon God's people. Remember the context. God, is, God has just delivered his people from slavery, 400 plus years of slavery. That's over four generations. He has freed them. Now as a loving father would to his children, he's setting boundaries around how they are to live. He's setting laws to shepherd his people. Much like you parents out there set rules to keep your children safe. And yes, children, those rules are there to keep you safe. The seventh commandment was set into place to, keep, to construct boundaries around the sanctity of marriage, around the holiness of marriage, to keep that perfect design from being trampled on. So as we keep that in mind, let's read our passage. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have another, no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not, shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave or his female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the reading of God's perfect and true word. Profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Oh God, we are just so humbled to be here this morning to come before you as, as our Father, to know that you are the almighty, all-righteous, all-powerful God that created everything. And we can call you Father. Your love is so abounding. We are so thankful to know you to have a relationship with you. And we just pray that this morning that you would you make yourself known to us. Father, that your word would speak to our hearts, that it would be convicting, that it would be transforming and truly renewing. Father, again, we're so thankful to be here and pray that you would use this time for your glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our verse for this morning is verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Five simple words, one command. Written by the finger of God on Mount Sinai to the nation of Israel. And as Christians today, we are not bound by this law. Our salvation does not depend upon us following this law or any of these commandments for that matter. But as we see in the New Testament, Christ reinstates this command and even makes more clear the original purpose of the command. God still holds the institution of marriage 
to its proper original design. And as, as followers of Christ, we're commanded to uphold that institution, uphold our marriage. So our roadmap for this morning, our first point will be the design, the design of marriage, and we'll move into the destruction, the destruction of adultery, and then we'll move into the demonstration of Christ. As I was preparing for the sermon, I realized just how much information there is here. We could spend weeks talking about the design of marriage. We could even try and throw another point in there and talk about what damages marriage. We could spend a couple weeks talking about the destruction of adultery, even a few more weeks talking about the demonstration of Christ. The topic of marriage is endless. I would even argue that marriage is one of the central themes of Scripture. We see in Genesis 1, God created the earth, created man and woman, and the institution of marriage, the beginning of our Bible. And then we see, we look forward to the end of our Bible, and we see this, this union between Christ and the church, this marriage ceremony. The bridegroom being unified with his bride. Our marriage on earth is to be a shadow of the union of Christ and the church. So as we walk through these points, understand this won't be an exhaustive study. That being said, I encourage you, go study marriage. Go study the sin of adultery, and, and most importantly, go study Christ. And I would love to speak to you further on this matter as well. So we begin with our first point, the design of marriage. And don't worry, this isn't going to be young Braden's opinion on marriage. We're going to go to Scripture to find God's opinion, the creator and mastermind of marriage. And I thank the Lord that I don't have to rely on my own wisdom and knowledge. So join me, church, as we rely on God the almighty, perfect creator of marriage. We begin in Genesis 2. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. God has made the whole earth, man and creatures, and each day God created and he said it was good. God said, let it be, and it was, and it was good. He said, let it be, and it was, and it was good. He said, let it be, and it was, and it was good. Let it be, and it was, and it was good. And on the sixth day, he said, let it be, and it was, and it was not good. Follow with me, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Then God brought all of the animals to Adam to see what he would call them, and Adam didn't find a, a suitable mate. Then we see verse 21 through 24. 
So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib, which he had taken from the man into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God has brought the woman to the man. There is this emotional, physical, and spiritual union between the two flesh becoming one. Now bear with me for a second. For those of you that are married, I want you to look at your spouse right now. Go ahead, look at your spouse. If your spouse isn't here, imagine your spouse. Regardless of your emotion for your spouse, go ahead, look. Keep looking. Examine your spouse. Now ask yourself, do I truly see myself and my spouse as one flesh? Before things get weird, go ahead and look back up here. <laughs> but really, we live in such an individualistic culture. Do we truly see our relationship, how God sees it? Do we look at marriage with the right lens? Do we look at our marriage with the culture's lens, which isn't all that great anymore? Or do we look at marriage with the lens of Scripture? God has designed marriage to be a union of two flesh becoming one. You aren't two flesh that come under one house. You aren't two flesh with one bank account, which is very uncommon nowadays anyway. According to God's design, you and your spouse are one flesh. How do you treat your spouse as if you're one flesh? Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 28. Ephesians 5, 28 says this, So husbands, ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So husbands, when you are speaking to your wife, do you speak to her as if you're speaking to yourself? Church, understand that when you are building up your spouse, you are building up yourself. But in the same way, when you are breaking down yourself, you are breaking down yourself. Breaking down your spouse or breaking down yourself? According to God's design, you are one flesh. 
you're breaking down your, spell, your spouse, you're truly causing torture and strife within your own body. You are a one flesh union. It is necessary to see your marriage as a one flesh union to have a proper view of marriage. Marriage was not designed to work any other way. One man and one woman come together to make one flesh. Now, that math has always been confusing for me. We got one plus one equals one. Let's try a little more complicated formula. I know a lot of you haven't been in school for quite some time. Let's try multiplication. What's well, one times one? Oh, yeah, equals one. One man times one woman equals one flesh. So glad that high school diploma paid off. So with that Ephesians 5.28 in mind, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. We'll be in this section of Scripture for a little bit. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You are to completely give yourself up to your spouse. You are one flesh. You are one unit. So we've been talking a lot about the design of marriage, the, the one flesh union, two becoming one. So now, let's look at adultery in light of God's original plan for marriage. So the destruction of adultery. As we begin to talk about adultery, especially on a communion Sunday, I understand there's varying ages here. We'll be discreet as possible. One of the few things that can truly break a marriage, one of the things that can truly destroy the marriage is adultery. Adultery is simply breaking that oneness that we've been talking about. Marriage is this emotional, physical, and spiritual union, and sex is what brings all of that together. It's the bringing together of the full relationship. It's not just a physical union like culture tells us. Most importantly, it's emotional and spiritual union. So when a husband or a wife steps outside of the bounds of marriage and steps into a sexual relationship with another person. That oneness is broken. The physical, emotional, and spiritual oneness is shattered. And it's not just your spouse that you're shattering, but yourself. Remember the one flesh union. You are sinning against your spouse, yes, but you're also sinning against your own body. 1 Corinthians 
about the same page as our last. 6.18. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral man sins against his own body. But not only that, you are sinning against an almighty, all-righteous God. The unity and oneness of marriage. It's as if you're taking the blueprints to marriage, looking God in the eyes and saying, I don't care about your perfect design. You catch it on fire right in front of them and say, I want what my heart wants. I want happiness. My lusts. The sin of adultery is a grievous act. It's not a light thing. So much so that in the Old Testament, it was punishable by death. Leviticus 10, or sorry, Leviticus 20, verse 10, be up on the screen. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. God views this as a very serious crime. To break down this purposeful institution of marriage, to break down God's purpose of one man and one woman. But the weight of the sin continues. Back to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. As Christians, we are members of Christ's body. When we engage in sexual immorality, we are spiritually joining Christ to that sexual sin. And this passage isn't just talking about married people, those unmarried as well. When you're committing a sexual act, you're bringing Christ into that sin. You're joining his body to that act. Church, sexual sin has far more implications than our culture tells us. You're sinning against your spouse. You're sinning against yourself. And you're disgracing God's name and bringing Christ into the union of this sexually immoral act. So church, when we what we saw in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Run away. Because like I mentioned in the beginning, that, that sin of adultery starts with but a small seed. 
And if we don't get out, that seed will begin to grow. That temptation will begin to grow into sin. And before we know it, that sin will be towering over our lives. If you remember the story of Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers and sold to Potiphar, a high-ranking official in Egypt. And he was entrusted with his whole estate. And one thing we know about Joseph, we're told in Scripture, is that he was beautiful in form and appearance. So when Potiphar's wife set her eyes on him, she went to him and said, lie with me. And Joseph's response in, in Genesis 39, Genesis 39, verses 8 and 9. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has given all that he owns into my hand. There was no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph had a correct view on marriage. And I think Joseph had a correct view on adultery. And most importantly, he knew who he would be sinning against. Then we see Potiphar's wife. She tried again. But this time, no other men were in the house. So she came to Joseph, grabbed his garment, and said, lie with me. What did Joseph do? Well, with the correct view of marriage, with the correct view of adultery, correct view of God, he ran. He didn't stick around and, and see what happened. He, he booked it out of there so fast that he left his garment in her hand. Church, flee from sexual immorality. I think sometimes we get into these sticky situations and, and we just, we want to be nice. We don't want to like be rude. We want to follow the 11th commandment, right? You've heard of that one? Thou shalt be nice. Yeah, no, it's not a thing. But we get in these situations, oh, I, I should be polite and like tell them why I'm leaving or I should, I should just stick around. I can, I can fight that temptation. No, church, flee, run, be like Joseph, and run as fast as you can from that sin, from that temptation. Flee from sexual immorality. Truly, that, that verse, that section of verses is one of my favorite. Flee from sexual immorality. And remember what Joseph said in the, verse, the end of verse 9. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Church, do you have a correct view of marriage? Do you have a correct view 
of adultery. So as we've been talking about the letter of the law, you shall not commit adultery. And on the service of the seventh commandment, check mark, never done that. I've never stepped out of the bounds of my marriage and stepped to another sexual relationship. Simple. I think even if we took a poll right now and asked, you think you could struggle with the sin of adultery? Like most people would say, nope, never struggle with that. I love my spouse. I could never. But as we begin to dive into the spirit of the law, the true purpose of the law, we begin to understand that the seventh commandment wasn't just an external issue. It was an internal issue. It was meant to pierce the heart of the issue. It was meant to get to the root of the problem. Adultery doesn't just come out of nowhere like we talked about. Adultery starts with a small seed of temptation. So as we begin to look at the spirit of law, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember last week, Scott brought us to this same passage. We talked about the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And much like this commandment, God took the sixth sixth commandment from an external issue and made it an internal issue. And he's going to do the same thing with the seventh commandment here. So Matthew 5, verse 27 through 28, is Jesus talking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Church, this is where the seventh commandment turns from being an issue for the minority of us here to being an issue for the majority of us here. Have you struggled with lust? Have you looked at another person that isn't your spouse with a lustful eye, with the desire to have them? Whether you're married or unmarried, this, this person isn't your spouse. If this person isn't your husband or your wife, then you have broken the seventh commandment. You have committed adultery in your heart. You have sinned against your spouse, or if you're unmarried, your future spouse. You have sinned against yourself. And most importantly, like Joseph recognized, You have sinned against the almighty, all-righteous God. So where do we go from here? Let's go deeper. We figured out that most of us here have a problem. Let's continue and see what Jesus has to say on the matter. 
Verse 29 and 30. Matthew 5 still. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Here's some simple practical advice from Jesus, right? Well, no. Jesus isn't telling us to tear out an eye or cut off a hand. He actually just made it clear that it wasn't an external issue. It isn't your eye that is looking that is causing you to lust. And it isn't your hand that is committing the act that is causing you to commit adultery. It's the heart. It's the heart. He's using this as an example to say that it would be better for you to enter heaven without an eye or without a hand than for your whole body to enter into hell. He's not promoting self-mutilation. He's telling us to take drastic measures to keep from lusting and committing adultery. So, what drastic measures are you willing to take to keep yourself from adultery? For those of you that struggle with content on the internet, there's many softwares out there that can help you with that. Covenant Eyes is one of them. It's about $15 a month and tracks and monitors where you go on the internet and sends it to an accountability partner. Yeah, I just don't have $15 a month though. Maybe you should cancel your Netflix subscription and get that instead. I think that would help a lot of temptation in self. Yeah, but I just really like my privacy. Well, remember that God's always watching. So why not have a brother or sister in Christ help keep you accountable and, and push you in the right direction as well? Maybe it's the places that you go. That place you, you just know you shouldn't go to. Maybe it's that girl's house or that guy's house. Well, I think all of you have smartphones and all of your smartphones have tracker apps. Why not give an accountability partner, brother or sister in Christ, the login info to your tracker app. And they can keep track of you. They can keep you accountable. They can help hold you up. Church, we are a body, a full body. As members of the body, we help each other. Help build each other up. The hand doesn't just work by itself. The head doesn't just work by itself. The feet, it all works as one. Church, work as one body. Walk with each other. So what are you willing to do to cut out the sin of adultery or any sin in your life? I encourage you, take drastic measures. Your relationship with your spouse is worth it. Even your future spouse, that stuff is affecting you right now and will affect your relationship later. Your relationship with God is worth it. 
take drastic measures. And understand that your marriage represents far more than just you and your spouse. Your marriage represents far more than just your last name. Your marriage represents the image of Christ and the union with the church, with his bride, you. So we've looked at the design of marriage. We've looked at the destruction of adultery on the external side and the internal side. And now we look to Christ. We look to the perfect demonstration of Christ. So we go back to Ephesians 5. We'll be in Ephesians 5 for a little bit. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 30. This is a, a very common passage on marriage. It shows us how wives are supposed to treat their husbands and how husbands are supposed to treat their wives. But where, does, where do we get this foundation of how we are to treat one another? Yes, it's Paul writing from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But where does Paul get this structure that we're supposed to follow? If we look closely to this passage, we see the relationship of Christ and the church. The perfect structure. The ideal model. And it's as if Paul is is speaking to the, the believers and is saying, follow this model. So verse 22 through 24, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So, church, Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the savior of the body. And the church is to be subject to Christ. We are to submit as believers, as the body of Christ, we are to submit to him. We are to be subject to his rule. He is our king, our master, our Lord, and he is the savior of the body. Verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, or another translation, make her holy, set her apart from the rest, to cleanse her, to purify her with the washing of the water with of with the word. 
Christ sacrificed himself so that his bride would be without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. Verse 28 through 30. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, his own wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Church, understand, as believers in Christ, we are a part of his body. We are in union with him. We are members of his body. And as members of his body, we can take comfort that he loves us. He nourishes us and cherishes us. Despite our rejection. Despite our adulterous relationship with sin. As his bride, we have run from him. We have run from his perfect love and ran to our sin. But as a perfect husband would, he gave himself up for her. He laid down his life for his bride. If we look back to Genesis 3, and the moment of Eve eating the fruit and sinning against God, Adam had the opportunity to be the perfect husband. Before Adam ate the fruit and sinned, he had the opportunity to lay down his life for his wife, for his bride. When God came to see Eve that had sinned, and Adam should have thrown himself at the feet of God and pleaded with him. Father, she didn't know what she did. She, she has sinned against you and, and broke your law, but, but please, Father, cleanse her and take my life instead. Let my life be a payment for her sin. But ultimately, Adam didn't do that. Adam ate the fruit and sinned. Really, the only perfect thing that Adam did do was represent mankind. We are all sinners before God. As we look at the seventh commandment, many of us, if not all, are guilty before a holy and righteous God. He gave us the seventh commandment to put boundaries around the perfection of marriage, and we've broken it. We've trampled on it. But Christ, Jesus Christ, was and is the perfect husband to his bride. He fulfilled what Adam couldn't. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He cared for and ministered to his bride. He died to himself daily to serve his bride. And ultimately, was beaten, mocked, and hung on a cross for you, his bride. 
But his love didn't stop there. He began to bear every drop of wrath from the Father that you deserve, that I deserve. He saved us from the very wrath of God. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't know Him as your Master, I plead with you, come to know Him. Come to know the saving work of Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Please do not hesitate. And church, know that regardless of how broken your relationship with your spouse is, Christ can put it back together. Much like our relationship with God was broken, completely separated, Christ came and put it back together. Don't think that your marriage is too far gone. Christ can work and will work through your marriage. He can put it back together. So as we lead into communion, in this time of remembrance, we look back to our passage, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So after the exodus of Egypt, truly one of the biggest moments of redemption in the Old Testament, God instituted what is known as the Passover meal, a meal that they would have once a year in remembrance of God delivering them from slavery. And much like marriage is only but a shadow of something greater, the Passover meal was only a shadow of truly the greatest day of redemption. The night that Jesus would institute the new covenant with his people. The night before he would be hung on a cross and save his people out of slavery to sin. Jesus would wash his bride clean from her filth. And as believers in Christ, this is a time to remember him. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul instructs us as believers to partake in these elements, in the juice and the bread. To eat the bread in remembrance of Christ's body and to drink the juice in remembrance of his blood. But understand that this is a purposeful time of remembrance. And before we take the elements, Paul instructs us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves. If we have sin in our lives that we haven't repented of, we need to bring that to the Lord. We need to give up that sin that we've been clinging to. Maybe the sin of adultery. Whether it be the, the internal sin or the truly act of adultery, the external sin, 
We need to lay that before the feet of Jesus and run to him. Repent. Turn from the sin and turn to the saving work of Jesus Christ. If you haven't been with us before, we don't take communion all at once. The musicians will play a few songs. And you're welcome. As you're ready, go get the elements and and take them. But take your time, church. Understand, this is important. Go before the Lord in a correct manner. Repent and take the elements. Fathers, I'd encourage you, take this time to lead your family through this. You're welcome to go out in the foyer and take the time that you need. As the musicians come up, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we come to you humbled to call you Father. Humbled to truly, to to be able to know you personally. You are the great almighty creator, the the most powerful, most all-knowing God, you are the only God. And we are but a small piece of your creation. But you love us. You know us. As Psalm 139 says, you know the innermost parts of our body. You are a great Father. And we just thank you for the time to to know you, to dig deeper into your word, to to know your character, to know your purpose of marriage. Father, I pray that you would just work in the hearts of all of us here, that you would continue to renew us, continue to bring us closer to you. Father, if there's people that don't know you, I pray that you would work in them, that you would draw them to you. Lord, that you may be glorified. We just thank you and pray all of this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen.